Welcome back, Screamers, to the final episode of our May Madness series in which we'll be looking at May's acting roles. And with that, we'll wrap up what has been a thoroughly enjoyable dive into Elaine May's career. I think, you know, we talked about uh, how we were kind of sad to see this all go. I think this last <laughs> iteration has been like, it's a good palate cleanse of like, all right, I'm ready to, I'm ready to send this one off into the sunset. Yeah. I have mixed feelings about kind of <laughs> these, you know, and it's not, some, and we'll get into it. I, I know I'm sort of jumping the gun, no, no, but it's, and, and it's not so much her in these movies, but kind of the films themselves. Yeah. We, posited off mic about a career where May was a more prominent actress than to maybe fill in the gaps and to potentially help her directing and writing. Not that I don't think she needed any help with her writing career. I think she was fine throughout the stuff that she was doing on, you know, kind of on this and on the sly and then you know, her stuff on Broadway and things like that. I don't think she ever really kind of fell out and I don't think she was ever want for work, to be honest. I, I, but could she have been a more household name if she had been a Cara Burnett or uh, Lily Tomlin, Lily Tomlin, yeah, Lucille Ball, kind of what like that kind of. Uh, career path where you kind of define the things that that you're putting on screen and you're making yourself a prominent player in those things. So let's say she takes the Jeannie Berlin role in A Heartbreak Kid or she's a more she's something else in Mikey and Nikki uh, potentially part of you know a part of the of the conversation in Ishtar where she is in the things that she is putting out there I think this kind of answers that is that I, I mean I don't know like I think she obviously was really good in A New Leaf I think she's good in a lot of these things we're going to talk about today but I don't think the material's up to up to snuff with what she had, what she was putting out on her own. And I, I think, like, the only thing that I could see potentially is that had she had been a Diane Keaton in Allen's films, like if she had been a kind of a player in his orbit throughout the sev- late seventies, throughout the, his eighties work, where it was that kind of more serio comic work. Um, maybe she becomes more of a, a, a household name and maybe we're still giving her directing opportunities and maybe she mirrors a, a Mike Nichols-esque career. Maybe she gets to direct The Birdcage rather than just write it. You know, in those types of things, I don't know, you, we can sit here and what if forever. But as I was sad to kind of leave the Mayverse, <laughs> now I'm, you know, I'm... I'm Mayverse not, or Elenaverse? I kind of like Elenaverse. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with you. Yeah, Elena, good. Elena, Elena good, Elena good. Let's do that. Good choice. And, uh... <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that it's I am not ready to be done with Elaine May, but I am definitely OK with where we are in the podcast and kind of letting this sail off into the sunset and let us still have good vibes about, about all of it. Yeah, I'm always going to kind of hold her up, um, you know, on a Mount Rushmore type uh, structure. And and to clarify, my Mount Rushmore would be just all women and not not a bunch of like white men. But I I do think, and I'll put a pin in this and we'll come back to it. But I I do think too that the material that she is drawn to, the material that she worked best with in, in writing and directing, does not really align with say Hollywood cinema. It more aligns with something like. Yiddish theater that is more steeped in satire and 
and dry, biting humor. You know, those first three films of hers are that. Ishtar is much more of a Hollywood film. And I think that's one reason that it wasn't successful. I think, too, that, you know, this is why we kind of look at these movies and go, or the movies that she acted in and kind of, okay, we can leave it there now because they are much more aligned with Hollywood cinema. Right. Sorry, sorry, screamers. If I was like, uh, I was down the hall earlier. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, we had a bit of technical difficulty. Hopefully, we've got it um, straightened out now. If if not, our producer, our very terrible <laughs> producer, which is which is me, uh, we'll try to fix it in post. What do you think would have happened had Mikey and Nikki come out first? Like, had she been given the opportunity to do a Casavetes film, and and then led into more what you can consider. Nichols slash Allen type movies and a new leaf and a heartbreak kid. Like what if, if do you think that potentially that could have been that studio would have known what to do with it? She could have been kind of brought up in a, in the Cassavetes wave of filmmakers of this kind of like American new wave, if you, whatever you want to call it. Right. I mean, it, it, and been able to make, her own husbands and her own, you know, th- those types of, of movies that are these Romer type films that that are, you know, that people still talk about today. And of course, I mean, they're still talking about May's stuff as well. I mean, but but do you think that could have shifted her, you know, her career in a, in, a, in a way where she's not pigeonholed? Because the, the, the thought process is, is that when you go into Mikey and Nikki and you've got Peter Falk and... Also, now I've seen Walter Matthau and Peter Falk's naked ass because of this podcast, <laughs> which, again, you know, given give a month ago, it's not something I would have thought that I would be doing. Jason, this is why we do this podcast. <laughs> it exposes you quite literally to new, new things. <laughs> new things. It's, yes, quite but it's also, it's also growth, right? It's personal growth. No, no, Jason. no, no, no. I'm, I'm all about it. I'm, I'm all about that experience. I just... I'm always then it's it's the, it's the little things as you go through this podcast and we do this that you just they're they're unexpected right I mean it, I just didn't uh, I didn't foresee it coming so that's a, again, and that's, and that's again, the beauty of life right this is an adventure we are on an adventure we're all doing this together I love adventures and this is an adventure I to answer to answer your question or to to address your question I one I don't I don't know if. Mikey and Nikki was the film she wanted to make first. I know she had been working on it in various stages, but I do wonder if if it had come out first, would she have been pigeonholed in a different way? So, I mean, because even sure. as we talk about Mikey and Nikki, we're like, oh, it's a better Cassavetes film than Cassavetes can make. As big of a fan as I am of hers, I don't think that that's fair to her to, to classify it that way. I, I think we probably do her a slight injustice in classifying that film as a better Cassavetes film. Sure, no, no, no. But, but, right, so I just think that I wonder if she still doesn't get pigeonholed. I also think, I mean, too, she was the only woman, right, working within that studio system. I don't think they would have ever known what to do with her. True. I mean, I think it would have been really interesting to see that film come out first and to see how we would talk about her or how we would talk about that female female perspective on men without having seen the two other films. Because I, th- I do think that A New Leaf and A Heartbreak Kid, in a way, teach us how to view an Elaine May film. 
Mm-hmm. I'm with you. And 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 then so we get to Mikey and Nikki, and it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a departure, but still we're like, oh, I see where this gaze is. I see where this point of view is coming from. I see the difference in perspective, as if it were made by Cassavetes. Yeah, I, th- I, my, I guess there was so much criticism leveled at her for in a new leaf and a heartbreak kid because of the way that she portrayed women in the sense that if she had just if her first film is sans women at all aside from the you know the 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 very very minor characters who are treated poorly very very poorly but also are the only ones that seemingly have a head on their shoulders right they're they're, uh, then maybe some of that can be reevaluated as a new leaf and heartbreak kid come out where it's not quite as harsh and she's not seen as like this uh, i don't know this this water carrier for for you know whatever wave feminism that, that was at the time and, and i think technically it was third okay. i know that we were like talking about where this are we now just so time. i know if someone asks. so this is interesting um it's either fourth or fifth. Really? I would have figured it was at least fifth. Well, there's, I think, some, again, like, we are two kind of straight white dudes talking about this, so take all of this with a grain of salt. We have, I, we have curious minds. No, we do. We, <laughs> yes, like, very much so. Um, I, I think, I, I mean, I think we probably should be in fifth with kind of the... The rise of technology and how that's being used and how you look at the conjunction of, say, protest in theory with all of this stuff together. Um, but hopefully someone out there will hear yeah, this and write us out and let us know and be like, you two are idiots. <laughs> we appreciate your your attempted allyship, but oh, my God, yeah, shut, please, the please shut the fuck no, up. Yeah. I mean, um, but it's I mean, so I think there is actually a kind of debate in that in that community. Or at least maybe lack of clarity. There's also this idea of do we have to put necessarily a, a terminology on it, right? Right. Or, or, or to to classify everything as a we are in this wave or this era of history when we're not even past it. I mean, we're still right. Sure. And I mean, frankly, with the way politics is going, we're going to go back to like first right, wave. We're circling back around. Right. Back. Susan B. Anthony is out there talking about like <laughs> suffrage and all this other stuff. I mean, in in Tennessee and everywhere. So. I just want to be able to be in a position that if a lady comes up and asks me about it, I can explain to her which wave of <laughs> with some authority. <laughs> Let me mansplain feminism to you, ma'am. <laughs> I'm sorry, is that Ms. or Miss? <laughs> what does your husband call you? <laughs> Everyone realizes these are jokes. <laughs> just so you know. There's disclaimer. <laughs> All right, so... Okay, but 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 back, back to, movies, to yeah, back, back, <laughs> back to I mean back to Elaine May. I, let's just we'll come to like the new film later. I think Let, let's just stick with Elaine May because I think this is interesting. And yeah, we, and we got and we got like you know. So started we, are we going chronological I mean, order? Or are we? Uh... Well, I yeah, I mean, I I want to touch a bit on the Nichols and May thing. Um, I mean, because this is where. You know, after auditing classes at University of Chicago and then meeting Mike Nichols and going to the Compass Theater, which turned into Second City, mm-hmm. um, you know, the two of them with their improv thing, what strikes me about that is that she's, and I've said this before, but she's more dynamic, but she's also braver. She's willing to sort of work without a net, so to speak, where Nichols always has to know where things are going, even if they just outline stuff. So, I mean, their kind of presence on stage together, she seems 
much more confident, much more the the star. And I think we see something different in her movie roles. Yeah, she's the quirky girl, right? She's, I mean, not, not that Manic Pixie Dream Girl is really the right nomenclature, but she's she is the she's the oddball right she's mm-hmm. never the ingenue she's never really um even in interlaughing she's an old hand at you know this, she's this acting you know school that she's a part of that her father's a part of yeah. and her father has been there forever right he's a so she she never gets to play in fact this is the only role where i think in when she was doing the nichols and may stuff it was very much she was very much more playful. She was she was portrayed as youthful. I mean, I know what they were trying to do with a lot of that as well. But but you're right. I mean, she was front and center, and was I don't know just but in everything else that she did, except for a couple of things, she was a side player that added a little bit of flair and was usually the only thing that anybody ever talked about in those movies. I find it interesting that a lot that most of her first stuff was based on stage plays that were done, you know, that were either done by Simon or Nichols or Reiner or you know, what I mean, Reiner didn't do the play for Interlaughing, but and and so it seems like she was thought of four movies that were like that, that that were coming off of the stage onto the screen, and you needed someone who could play to the rafters, but. In a and a lot of times in these movies they just it just didn't that playing to the rafters just did not work. And I, and I think Interlaughing is a is a good good example of that. So this is a 1967 film. This would be more about six years after Nichols and May kind right. of you know kind of broke up, um, where she'd been doing mostly screenplays, writing stuff, um, oftentimes kind of just uncredited or like working I guess like but behind the scenes maybe on on the writing itself is that yeah, fair to- a, yeah I think so and she had a cameo in the graduate and like so, so she was still around yeah. the yeah. the you know the scene essentially yeah but but not hadn't really seen anything prominent right and so in in, in this film she plays she plays a kind of ingenue I mean because because our main character David, I, and I forget his, I forget the actor's name, I'm sorry. Uh, it was, yeah, I mean, he was the one that they were introducing in that film. He played Poppy in Seinfeld. That was his, like, his uh, big... Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, he's been in other things. He has he's, been, and I don't mean char- to... He's a character actor. I think his name is Rennie something or other, Sant- right. Santonio or Sant- Santoni. Um, and, and, yeah, he's... And Alan Arkin played it on stage, which I can see works a lot better uh-huh. than, than, than him in this, than Rennie in this role. Um, I, I just I, everything about this movie just reeks of this being Reiner's first film mm-hmm. and Reiner being way too close to the material to be able to pull back and not just be hackneyed and hammy and again playing to the rafters but not knowing what to do with the the expansion of the story interlaughing love California Suite, none of those movies, and again, I, I don't want to jump ahead, but none of those movies know how to take themselves from the stage to the screen and do it well at all. They don't know what, I mean, and so I can see Inner Laughing being really funny, you know, when you're watching it and you're just watching this guy who's stumbling over trying to become an actor and he's got these 
overbearing Jewish parents and he's got a shopkeeper that he works for and he's got uh, Milton Berle um, is it Milton no it's um, what's the other it was not, is it Milton Berle who does the not Milton Berle what am I this is terrible Don Rickles Don Rickles thank you like, I can't again getting old sucks but, um, <laughs> but so you've got all these little set pieces that come in and you know that that clearly uh, would work probably on the stage because you're just in the there's not a lot of place to move around right so the, right. The, the, the physical comedy of it all and the kind of absurdity of it all plays so much better because you've got an audience who's laser focused on the action in this case when you start taking things out of the stage and out of your individual set pieces the only part of inner laughing that actually works is when you go back to the theater and that part is pretty damn funny. That like third act, like right. the final act. Yeah, and then, like the, like I said, the last 10 minutes of inner laughing is pretty damn funny. When he opens the wall and walks through, when he steps on Elaine May's foot and she screams out. He calls her the wrong name. Right. He's exiting. And it's, but nothing else really works. And it's just, it just it's just such a slog. And like, it's, an, I mean, I don't know. I read a bunch of reviews about it. Everyone seems to think it's a fine, nice little film, right? It's It was easy to sit through. It's something you can just put on. I think Ebert gave it three and a half, three star. I mean, like a lot. So it's like, it was, I mean, he gave it a thumbs up. And it was like, this is a nice movie and you can go and watch it. <laughs> I was like, that's a really kind of faint phrase. I, I, I sent you a text when I fired it up and I said, this is almost unwatchable. I've really struggled to get through this. I've really... <laughs> I, I wanted to like it, but I just it look, it's also acted like it's a stage play. Like you said, this like right. playing to the rafters and it just it doesn't work. None of it works. I don't even know, like, why this cat wants to be an actor. And right. they even ask him in the film and he's just like, oh, I mean, it's just that's what's so crazy about this and love is that like, I don't I guess it makes sense on the stage, but nothing really makes sense. I feel like a lot of the movies in the 60s and early 70s, especially these kind of like movies that are coming from like the early movies from comedy giants, especially things that are coming from the stage to the screen, just don't make sense. No. Like there's just something, I don't know how you get lost from a from a script that you clearly have, you know, <laughs> that, that works for, I mean, this was nominated for a, a Tony, I think. I mean, it's like, not that that's always necessarily a good indicator of greatness or anything like that, but but I mean, still, there's something that somebody saw in it. It's got on the stage. It had great reviews. But yeah, you're right. This movie doesn't make any sense. Like you just you're again, you're thrown into this guy. He works as a druggist. And well, he, he his parents want his to become. Parents, a, he, he works in a machine shop. Right, right, right. Um, for Mr. Foreman, <laughs> um, who, who's like a you know Jewish boss who, I mean, is also kind of overbearing on this on this guy. And so his you know his parents want him to go be a druggist, send him to pharmacy school. So he can be a druggist. And he's like, I want to be an actor. But it, right. But you don't really even give it. And like, and you would think that with Reiner, with this being a character stand in for Carl Reiner, who's the director of this movie, you would have more of a motivation or more of a desire. But this guy seems to just be floating through life on everything. You know, he's supposed to be this character who's not necessarily um, a Don Juan, but he's buffoonish in the sense where he's attractive to women. Like women are looking at him thinking, well, I mean, Elaine May talks about him being the cute one. The receptionist, um, you know, one is, is attracted to him, lets him, you know, put deliveries through the front. I know that's a fucking thinly veiled joke. Um, <laughs> wow. And, so, well, they're supposed to go in the back. Right. They're supposed to go in the back. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know and then he's that then he is you know he has a girlfriend who is supportive of him as well 
none of it's just it's just he, none of that comes across aside from the story telling you that this guy is supposed to be one a 40 year old fresh out of high school who's now <laughs> and the only, the only acting experience he has and i and i get so the idea is that this, this is set in the 30s or the 40s right when there are these acting schools that you had to pay to come up in and i think i think just one this movie is very dated and none of this stuff translates well at all today <laughs> to, to, to the reality of today so if you weren't a fan of like the book or you you hadn't seen the stage play i just can't imagine anybody sitting through this in 1967 right right, right. Um, a couple of things on may she I, I i think her tone is really uneven throughout the entire film but i think we start to see bits and pieces that we see later you know in her later acting roles we start to see some of her physical comedy some of her physical acting especially when they're alone in her dressing room and and she's getting dressed she always has this like mischievous look in her eye which it's almost like at any second she could just light something on fire <laughs> just kind of be like what i didn't what happened i don't know um so we started to see that too but uh, you know for the most part i can't figure out is she trying to come on to this guy or not like why does she like him so much why does she waive his tuition fee why does she on one hand try to seduce him and then when he gets too close she like wants to shake his hand it, none of it like makes i know part of that's like the direction but also the way she plays it is kind of weird as well right but. yeah I don't, I, and going back to our original question of like why she didn't act more I think this is a lot of it I think she tried to bring a lot to these roles and again I know I'm projecting so but I think but I think that just knowing her and knowing her oh yeah you guys are besties we are we are yeah, we, I'm so we, jealous we too talked the other day I was at uh, in at lunch with Jeannie and, and <laughs> that would be that would be can you imagine, like, the text you would get from Elaine May? I mean, look, I know my texts are hilarious, <laughs> but can you imagine hers? <laughs> yes. And they'd probably come at, like, all hours, too. Right, just, right, right. Jason, what are you doing? <laughs> just, I, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I also think this film kind of has a um, don't tell me what to do, mom, vibe to it. And, and, and I think this is something that does translate, uh, you know, to you know, even contemporary society of, of I want to go into the arts. I don't want to go into this kind of like safe, secure business. I know that nobody wants to go in the arts anymore, and that's too bad. Um, I think that's a real shame. Everyone wants to go into, quote unquote, business. Um, but this has that same kind of vibe. You'll be a druggist, but I want to be an actor. I want to be an artist. I want to do something else. I know that it's not financially secure, but I have a passion for this thing. And, and nobody cares about your passion, kid. And, right. And it, I think this would have worked a lot better had Rennie been a 16, 18-year-old kid. You know, if it were Ralph Macchio. <laughs> if it, well, I mean, come on. If it was Ralph, <laughs> Ralph is my male Elaine May. So I'm just going to okay. Just gonna all right, put that I did not know that about you. <laughs> I mean, in all seriousness, Karate Kid is yep. one of my favorite films. But that's sure. but that's sure, sure. but that's uh, of where I am in age wise. Um, and I'll, I'll defend that movie. I'm not going to not going to lie. You're still but. a teenager at heart. <laughs> but if but if the main character is a 16 year old kid who's working in post depression era U.S., you can get an idea of why this kid would be enamored. Show him going to the movies a couple of times. Right. Like one, cut out a lot of the crap. Like just cut out one. You can 
you don't. I don't think you need his girlfriend in the role. I don't think that really because this idea that he's going to go off and get married and become that probably is not necessary. But if you make this kid a kind of a a, a lover boy type character who is being oppressed by his parents who wanted to become this boring ass pharmacist and he works in this this you know low blue low wage blue collar job and he's and he's always wanted to be an actor and then he stumbles upon you know a, a troop that has some credentials but is also predatory as well with the predatory ingenue of, of Elaine May in this case where she's clearly older this movie works a lot yeah. better yeah. and then you can kind of see in the end scene where he comes into his own like you then you're rooting for him where he mm-hmm. sucks when he starts off mm-hmm. but by the end of the play he's killing it yeah, I can see Enter Laughing being a, but like it's so stilted. Like when the whole idea of Enter Laughing, when you know he's reading the he's reading the stage direction, and I mean it's just like oh, I'm looking at the YouTube and I'm like oh, I got an I, hour. I know thing, well, that's so. I just rolled my eyes so hard <laughs> when that I'm like really this is what we're doing. I just uh, yeah, I, and 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 I like you said I think you can see the beginnings of May trying to to take what she was doing with her improvisation and and bring it bring something to life to all of these characters yeah um but you couldn't overcome the material in this case and you certainly couldn't overcome the casting outside of of her shelly winters is terrible in this i know just terrible and you're kind of like why is she how did what is she doing in this like there's no laugh. Like there's no laugh. Like where you, I mean, again, I know this is different, but like you look at George uh, uh, Costanza's parents. That's what they needed to be, right? They needed right. to be these ridiculous but, right. Jewish suburban parents that were just like, George, what are you doing with your life? Kind of thing. I mean, like, <laughs> right, right. It needed right. to be. If you're gonna, if you're gonna make it hammy, fucking add some Swiss on there, baby. I mean, just make it, make it a fucking, make it a, you gotta right. make it, you gotta, you gotta make it a sandwich. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. You gotta make it a sandwich. Yeah. I think if we had a, if I, if I'm trying to get a catchphrase or for make it a sandwich. sandwich. Yes. Let's get make it a sandwich. You can't just have all the ingredients. You gotta make it a sandwich. Uh, I like sandwiches. <laughs> They're great. I, they really are. I, I, I let's love. Let's move yeah. In this film, I think May is the most, interesting thing kind of going on in laughing you or in love in love okay, okay. in love uh, well, shit I, sorry <laughs> in both and, and what I mean is is so Jack Lemon and Peter Falk are like old school buddies that run into each other when Jack Lemon is, is is attempting to commit suicide but the two of them are cartoons they I mean they are caricatures in in this film they're just way over the top and this I mean movie would have worked a lot better had it been animated uh, yes Right? Because you could see, like, Jack Lemmon would be goofy. Like, the, the cartoon character, Goofy. His movements are so cartoonish. I mean, the way he moves is just ridiculous. Like, he's made out well, of rubber. It's, it's, and, like, like, it's like he's playing. I mean, it is. He is playing it for the stage. It's just way, way over the top. Right. Yeah. And, and, and Peter Falk, too. As dreamy as he is in this, <laughs> and he is—he's a hot man. I mean, he's really good I mean, looking. I'd have to wait another ten years to see his ass, but it's too bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but so I mean, these two are so kind of amped up, and and the other—the actual ingenue character, whose name is Linda—she's also way amped up. And Elaine May comes in, and she's got to just turned down so much compared to everyone else that 
it makes her more compelling, especially when she sort of breaks out a chart, like charting their sex life. And it's, and it's just kind of going, you need to listen to me. You need to look at this. You need to look at this. So for me, she's she's way more interesting than anyone else. I still think you film. need to. I think you need to break down the plot, though. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> look, I so, had to do so, fish star. I think so, you have to do okay, it for love. All right, so Jack, Jack Lemmon is is just unhappy with he's he's a miserable guy and he wants to commit suicide so he's he's standing on the bridge i don't know if it's the brooklyn bridge i don't know if it's the george washington bridge i don't know which bridge it is or if it's the manhattan bridge peter falk comes riding by on his vespa and eventually recognizes him as his old friend and they go to a bar they talk they commiserate and he's like peter falk says okay listen you got it you got to come home with me i'm going to make you dinner you can meet my wife she's wonderful i tell you oh she's wonderful they go out i don't know if they're like in in queens if they're in like sort of a long island suburb i don't i don't know where they are but they go to peter falk's house and it turns out that <laughs> Peter Falk is trying to pawn Jack Lemmon off on his wife so he can get a divorce and marry Linda, the gym teacher. What does Peter Falk, Peter Falk says to Jack Lemmon? I'm more in love today than the day I was married. <laughs> and Jack Lemmon goes, really? He goes, yeah, now if I could just divorce my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some funny lines there. So as it turns out, uh, eventually... Elaine May and Jack Lemmon fall in love. Peter Falk runs off with Linda. But those relationships don't work out either because everyone is just super fucking annoying. And so then they do the reverse where they they get divorces from their lovers and they get back together. And then Jack Lemmon falls in love with Linda. You forgot about the weird subplot of Peter Falk selling. Oh, that's right. To Peter Falk. Lo- Peter Falk has a secondhand bric-a-brac <laughs> business, and so he he digs through the trash to find like old furniture and old lampshades and anything that people discard. And then these two guys that have like a cart full of stuff will come by and like buy things <laughs> and haggle for the price. It's ridiculous. Um, I don't even know where to begin with this movie. Like I I, I think. Can I can I have you noticed that the the films that we've talked about in like the 60s, late 60s, early 70s and, and, and through, I think, into like the late 70s are super sweaty and horny? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I knew this before, but kind of like well, watching it, all this stuff again, I'm like, they don't do this anymore. Like, like. No one sweats anymore, and no one is this horny anymore. And, and there's a, I hesitate to use the word bizarre, but I, I think an underdeveloped gay subtext to this movie, where Falk and Lemon are sure. potentially are lovers, sure. and Elaine May is a lesbian, and it's and it's. I mean, she says as much that she wishes that she was. A she lesbian. does, yeah. But there's this, I mean, there's uh, uh, an indication that Lemon is suicidal because of, not necessarily, necessarily, I mean, just because of a a life that is essentially loveless because he's a homosexual man in in this era. He says he's never been in love, right? Never, never never once. And and in the way that Falk talks about their time together, and again, I know this is cliche, this is not my ideas coming, but they were cheerleaders together, they were, you know, they were, you know, or they were like frat bros. They were, they were drum majors. Drum, yeah, okay. They were leading the, yeah. So, I mean, you know, what people would have thought were done by Look, I went to, I went to Ohio State. It's a big deal. 
The, the drum major dots no, the eye in the movie. The, yeah, yeah. yeah, you've seen the Ohio State movie. <laughs> no, I've seen Drumline with uh, <laughs> Nick Cannon. <laughs> That's how yes. everything works, That's, right? Yes, exactly. Look, yeah. I take everything that I know about the world, and it's if it, if a movie told me about it, then that's what I think is real life, and I just discount everything else. You know, this is this is I know this is off topic, and I don't really care, but this is interesting because I I don't know about you, but I. I will. I tend to relate to life through various art forms, whether it's movies, whether it's you know books, whether it's music, whether it's fucking paintings. But I do, right? I mean, those things let me look at the world in a different in a different way and maybe learn something new about myself and everything else around me. So I get it, right? I, I fucking get it. Um, I I will often refer to like scenes from a film, you know, like, oh, that reminds me of this moment in Michelangelo Antonioni's. And I sound like a real douchebag, but I don't care because it makes sense in my head. Right, right. But, but, okay. I mean, notwithstanding, right. Yeah. I mean, that we, that's, that's what we do, right? We, we, we filter life through, um, culture. Yeah, of course. And drumline is what I'm talking about. Yes. When I talk about culture. Highbrow culture. <laughs> very, very highbrow culture. I, I don't like I, I sat and watched this movie as well and I just was like what the fuck is going on scene to scene when I mean there are like I said there are some really funny bits in it the 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 sex graph that Elaine shows Falk is funny her conversation once she realizes that hers and lemons I guess it's hers and Falk's um, relationship is breaking up and the and the the soliloquy about her, how she wanted, or she wished that she was a lesbian. I thought that, I thought that was really funny. There's bits and pieces, and this is really funny, but then there's just so many, like, non sequiturs that make, I mean, that I was just like, I had to, like, go back, and I was, like, rewinding, because I'm like, did I fucking miss something? Once May and Lemon get together, and Lemon is just basically another man-child. He's, he's, he doesn't know how to... Uh, to behave in the world, he doesn't have a job, and the the sex that Falk and May weren't having is even less now that she's with Lemon. You can assume that that the graph hasn't gone up at all. Right. And there's at one point where she's like making him breakfast, and he and she gives him his paper hat, and then and and that's a thing that happens in this movie. <laughs> paper and like it comes up a couple more times, and I'm like, is like, and then I was like. I think at the end I was like trying to make a connection of like is he was he a surgeon or like some sort of like orderly or like I was I was trying to add things to this movie that I was just like nothing again everything is everyone in this movie is so like you said so so very annoying so it makes it very difficult to get through and then like so I I don't know if I don't know if I was zoning out or if I was just like missing big swaths of 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 character development because it just none of it made sense to me at all. Well, a, a lot of stuff gets gets breezed over and there's a scene where Falk and Lemon are going back and forth about how bad they had it had it as kids. And that's part of where the paper hat comes from. That's part of why he drinks you know, a strong oh. drink to Lemon is like one third water no, one third water, two thirds of milk and then right. one third sake and two thirds milk. Right. Right. <laughs> It, it it it's why he wants Elaine May to put sugar in his cereal. But I think I think too that Lemon. I'm going to give this movie like too much credit and like Lemon too much credit here or his his character. 
One of the things that, that he's miserable about is that he can't find sort of satisfaction in being a kind of great man. So as he, when he was in school, he was like the most likely to be everything great in the world, right? He was going to, he was going to write a novel. He was going to cure diseases. He was going to do all these things. And he's done none of it, even though he's like traveled the world, lived in brothels. I mean, he says like, I lived in brothels. I did this. I, I scaled this mountain. All of these things that he has, like that he just kind of discounts. So I think that's where the like, <laughs> where the basement and this like operating room theme came in, and where some of these. Uh, but but again, it's all breeze past. There's no there's no real development, and it's just sort of like pawned off as like exposition and. So we're all like, why is he wearing a paper hat? <laughs> right. And I can forgive the the um, the playing to the Raptors in this case, because this movie, out of all of them, looks like it was as close to what you saw on the stage as what you saw in the film. The, the set pieces aren't large. There's a few driving beat scenes, but there is a bar scene. There's a house scene. And there's a bridge scene. And that's really all you needed. You come back, you bounce back and forth between those. Right. So where did we miss? Like, what do you? Because again, another thing that got good reviews ran for three years, and I don't. And on on stage, just does not translate the film. Now, Mike Nichols directed the first the in, did the stage play. Again, one of those things where you probably should have gotten Nichols to translate it to to screen because at that point he's a director. I mean, he he's doing his own thing mm-hmm. and doing mm-hmm. it well. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know if I don't know if Nichols turned this down or just didn't want to do it. Well, there, obviously, it's you know sixty nine, so it's not like it's who the hell knows, right? There's no there's no going to be history on love. Anybody who's anybody's actually heard of this movie, or not. <laughs> but it is I don't know. Like I said, it's so bonkers, and like it it reminds me of there's a Saturday Night Live sketch when Leslie Nielsen um, was hosting back in the nineties, and there was a sketch called nineteen sixties movie, and it was just. There was like a Beatles-esque band and like Nielsen's big joke, he comes into the screen, he's like, whatever you do, don't show me any gorillas because I'm really scared of them. And then of course, you know, uh, halfway through the the sketch, there's a guy in a gorilla suit and it's just this, it's just this like Austin Powers prequel where it's just all insanity, like on this, on the screen. And then, and then, and then they play off, the Beatles play off at the end and everyone's happy. And and this movie's kind of like, they were just nothing really, there's really nothing that happens that's over really important all the major themes are kind of just left on the table there there's of all the subtext that is there they do absolutely nothing with it and with the people that you have who are established good actors at this point like it's weird that this movie is not more poignant or if, if, if or I don't know just more coherent because it's there's just I don't like I don't know like you complain about and, and studios complain about and again I get it because there's probably this probably cost nothing and someone just said I'm gonna do it in two months and here it is but you complain about someone like May taking too long to edit or, or running too much film for certain you know but you get a polished product and then you then you get this how how much money could this have possibly made like again this is a footnote a forgotten footnote and, and not that every film needs to be this historical epic event that we're going to carry forward for you know the next 50 years but man this is such a nothing of a film <laughs> it's so bad but like if you would have told me there's a movie that stars Peter Falk, Jack Lemmon, and Elaine May. I would I would think kind of on some level that it's good. That it's right. going to be really good. And this is not. No. No, it's not. <laughs> and I think a big part of it is, like you said, it's not cohesive at all. It just does not make any sense. And these connections are just not there. 
and again, it's 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 that translation issue of. I think people what trying to do too much, taking it from the stage and putting it on film. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, now we can do all these other things, and maybe there's a reason that it wasn't done in the first place. Well, it's like there's stage direction that was actually missing in this case. Like someone who understood how it all put together, and the original actors who were on this original stage play understood how it was all put together, didn't do it here. And 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 it just like I said, I don't know. I don't I don't put the blame necessarily on. Falk, May, or Lemon, although I do think someone should have told Lemon, look, this is a movie. Like, don't, you don't need to scream. You don't need to act as bonkers as you're doing. Do it something like at hot level. That's all you need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need, yeah. you don't need to ramp that up any more than what you did in something like it hot. Because <laughs> this is all, your, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. No one's going to watch this. I don't know what we're <laughs> That's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's, it's, it's an interesting artifact and, and Elaine May's in it. Next, she would do a new leaf. We've already talked about a new leaf, but I think this is where, I mean, for me, this is her sweet spot of acting where she has the physical comedy down. She has the nuanced line delivery down and that mischievous look in her eye plays really well to to everything kind of anti-Mathow in the film. Yeah, which you would go forward another than what uh, seven years to uh-huh. get to, to get to California Suite. The, everything that works in a new leaf doesn't work in California Suite. And she's a footnote in that <laughs> yeah, film. Yeah, that she doesn't come in until an hour seventeen. Look, that film's a mess. It's another one of these <coughs> movies that so California Suite is um, uh, it's an anthology, not really an anthology film, but there's four it's stories. Kind of like it's kind of like the Tarantino Four Rooms thing. Yeah. I mean, is that fair? It's fair. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a it, it's all set on the eve of the Academy Awards. Uh, and it, at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and it's four different stories. Uh, a couple from Chicago, London, Philadelphia, and what was the other one? Um, so you get, well, New York. New York. New York, New York. yeah. Because, so, yeah, Alan Alda uh, and, and Jane Fonda. And so all of this, when they, this is a Neil Simon stage play. Uh, Neil Simon didn't direct it. Herbert Ross directed it. Herbert Ross directed Footloose and uh, yeah, he's directed a bunch of things. A lot of things that you would have seen and you were just never known that that was just a guy that you, you knew who he was basically. Also kind of a, supposedly a tyrant on this set actually, but that's neither here nor there. This stage play, when Simon's doing it, it is four actors who are doing each of the stories. So basically it is a it is a it's a role for an actor that they desperately want to do because it shows pathos and drama and, and physical comedy and subtle comedy and rat-a-tat-tat dialogue and and Simon's known for that too. He's not Mamet, but he but he definitely has the the, the pointed back and forth. When they translate it to the screen, now it becomes this all-star studded cast and you get inter- so it, when it's on the stage it's four stories and four distinct stories they, they all happen in the same room it's the actor and actress couple it is a, a couple from New York it is a, a foursome of uh, doctors and that, that's the slapstick comedy and then it's a, a couple from Philadelphia who are attending a bar mitzvah um, and, and that's May and, and that's May and Matthau and so we're we, we're brought in to a story about a mother whose daughter, uh, this is played by Alan Alda and Jane Fonda and Dana Plato, which you don't see until the very end of the movie. Um, That's who that fucking was? Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, and it's, it, it's basically a, a mother who is living in New York. She's separated from her husband for her ex-husband from nine years. The daughter is 17 and decides to be rebellious and move out to California with her father. They, he's had her for the summer. She's decided to stay. Jane Fonda is going to California to pull her back. And then they have this... Um, you know this this dialogue to 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 it's a state of the nation kind of a, right kind of right thing. and it's and it, it you could see how this would work on the stage play actually this was the part of the movie that probably worked the best for me I liked I liked seeing them go back and forth and the dialogue I thought was really kind of sharp and I thought they both knew how to like deliver it really well I agree the other part that I thought worked really well was the Maggie Smith Michael King. yeah so those so those two, those two pieces I thought why aren't these like their own movies mm-hmm. right so I mean Maggie Smith Michael Payne, Michael Caine play play a couple a married couple who trade barbs back and forth they're playful but but they kind of become more and more venomous as the night goes on or as, as, the, as the movie goes on as they've been drinking she's an actress who's up for an Oscar award which is why they're there she doesn't win she was a dark horse anyway right <laughs> right but that adds more and more tension and then you know things get said we start to find out more and more about them but I thought like those those two, those two stories were good, and and ironically, oh, and Maggie that, Smith actually wins the <laughs> supporting actress award for this role. She's so good, and she's good. She's really, really good. And that part was funny, and Kane and she her have a good rapport. I think Fonda and Alda have a good rapport. Yes. Alda can be grating at times, and a lot of like Alda's roles are like this: these kind of talky. Uh, East Coast uh, elitist you know, intellectual elite. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so a lot of that was coastal kind of elite, <laughs> right? But those two stories are told with the most confidence. They're also given the most screen time. We're also introduced to Bill Cosby and Richard Pryor um, as two African Americans. This is supposedly like some sort of like we're going to give them some sort of um, you know station in life that you wouldn't normally see because Cosby and, and and Pryor had just done Uptime Saturday Night a few years earlier. So this maybe kind of puts things on its head a little bit in 1978. Um, but then you reduce them to this awful slapstick comedy that they're neither one of them, you know. And again, I don't want to get into the, <laughs> the Cosby shit, but like. Neither one of them were known for their physicality, their 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 comedy. Like I mean, like it, they were known for stand up. They were known for commentary on society in, in different in different senses. And I mean, so like to put them into to give them roles as doctors, and then immediately then devalue them by making them just these three stooges ask these you know this these you know these scenarios that that just belittle them throughout the entirety of their set is was really really weird and like it's just it's weird to me i can understand why Pryor and cosby would sign up for this because it does give them the ability to you know to show off uh, you know dr- dramatic acting chops but because they're, they're not funny here they're not there's nothing about oh, they're their not characters. dramatic either I mean, right and it's just so it's just buffoonery that happens yeah. and it really is just kind of like it's embarrassing by the time it all ends up and like it just like the things that happen to them are just are, are just I mean they're just dumb they're, right. they're, they're yeah. not played well no no and I and I and I think there's some um, political aspects of this as well where you're like okay so you're gonna pick the two black doctors to be like well we only have one room we lost your other reservation that's who you're gonna I, I just I find all of that really problematic right or to show them you know with no no regard 
to the the prior couple whose whose bathroom is overflowing and like no one cares. They just don't care. Right. And there's no way that I this just, play, there's no way that this plays well at all with these no. with these characters. Mm-hmm. You should have given them you should have cast them in some of the other roles at that point. You should have given the, you can't but like, you can't. You can't even put them in this movie. Because you 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 well, if you well, put them into the if you put them into the Alda and Fonda roles, maybe that works. But then you still Pryor have and Cosby arguing about like <laughs> that, <laughs> that would, would be really right? that would be really interesting, especially in seventy eight. If they're if the two of them are are a or couple a and couple. Are, yes. yeah, yeah, that would be. And then you can see them chewing on that dialogue right. and delivering it in a way. That, I mean, I think we, uh, yeah, I mean the Cosby stuff notwithstanding, I think we know that the two of them can do that um, if given the the sort of you know right material and, and, and the space to do it. Right. But yeah, that'd be interesting. Or like you said, if they were able to comment on society around them as as two black men in the Beverly Hills Hotel around all of this. Yeah, you can't make them black and put them in that scenario and then not have something additional and then the stage play. Kick them. Just kind of kick them. Because right. that's what that's right. what this movie does. Right. This is like Axel Foley in the Beverly Hills Hotel and and you know and but again without the humor attached to it and without the without the punching up that Axel is able to do for these kind of stuffy these stuff shirts that, that exist in this hotel. So an hour and seventeen. Minutes I was going to say, tell us about tell us about Elaine May. And now we're into a scenario where Walter Matthau is arriving in California um, from Philadelphia to attend his nephew's bar mitzvah. Uh, he is met by his brother earlier from the airport and his brother now that he's moved out to California has become this kind of play not playboy but kind of like he's just kind of gross he's just a gross old man he's a horny old man right he's hitting on young girls he's always like you know making comments as they pass by they have a night out together Elaine May is Walter Matthau's wife she's coming in the next day so the brother knowing that he's going to be alone home alone hires a hooker and that's the film's term not mine (laughs) although whatever I'm a Ball I mean, saying like, hooker, but I, mean, <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to denigrate. But yes, yeah, so she's a hooker in this movie. <laughs> so when Walter Matthau gets back up to his room, there's a hooker waiting for him. He's like stumbling. He's like, oh, is it, he thinks he's in the wrong room. And then cut to black. We wake up the next morning with Matthau. The hooker has. They both have drank a, a bottle of tequila, so the hooker is passed out, and. He oversleeps. It's 1045. May is supposed to he was supposed to pick up May at the airport. She comes in. And then there's a lot of buffoonery from so it's it's basically Mathau trying to hide the hooker from May. And then, and and so there's a lot of, uh, you know, stumbling over one another. There's like Walter Matthau's trying to grab the body and put it out into the hall. She's not dead. She's just passed out. <laughs> Unresponsive. And then, you know, and then there's a story of Walter Matthau realizes he can't get out of this scenario. And the, the, the hooker is still in the bed. And May who's desperately tired who wants to go to sleep before the 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 bar mitzvah and um and so Matthau comes clean and essentially may is like whatever i'm gonna go spend all your money and fuck it like i don't care like it doesn't matter we've been married for 15 years it's not so much that i'm gonna leave you i'm just gonna i'm just gonna make you pay for it and then they she does that she buys a nice dress gets her hair done and they gives the hooker her shoes (laughs) gives the hooker her shoes and then they go to to get a cab to go to the bar mitzvah and uh, the hooker is taking their cab and Elaine May's like I'm not going to be late so we're going to share a cab with the hooker and we're going to roll credits and that's the end of California Suite 
again, I liked this movie because I think the high, well, let me say this. I liked the high parts of this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the low parts, but I think the high parts for me were enough to kind of warm me over to like just very, a very, very small passing grade. But again, this is not something I'm going to come back to ever again. And, and it really is like Mathau. Like if you compare this to a new leaf, where everything in a new leaf is is subtle and subdued but hilarious, this again is played to the rafters. Mathau's all over the place. He's like falling over couches. He's in. He's he's disheveled. He's wearing a pajama shoot suit, a pajama shirt, excuse me, and like pants with with his pants unbuttoned. And he's like, you know, it's. All it's again. This is Jack Lemmon in love, almost. It's not quite to that level, but it's but it gets there. And May is just kind of a stand-in for the audience because we're all just sitting here going, "What the fuck are you? What are we doing? Like, what are we doing here?" And the and the scenario is not funny enough to book in to to like finish this movie, right? It's not such a ah ha ha ha. There's a passed out hooker in our bed, and that happens so. Who hasn't been there, right? Right. I mean, like this is not. I don't know. Like again, I understand this for the stage because then you get to see four actors who get to demonstrate a full wide range. Of, and you're like, oh shit, they were great and that, and they were great. And, oh, and they just switched up. I get this on the stage. This idea of like taking this to you needed to do something different, like because these yeah. stories alone, this just looks like a disjointed movie that you had four short films that you could have done, That's, and then yeah. but you you didn't have four of them that were good. And this is what happens a lot with anthology films, anyways. Like you feel you have a lot of filler, but then like the the Alda and the Fonda scene should have been the bookend mm-hmm. you start with mm-hmm. and, and of course I guess it is to an extent because Dana Plato comes to the airport and meets up with Fonda and is saying you know I'll be back and you know yeah, whatever blah 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 and so and then Fonda go, get, goes and gets on the plane but you needed more of that you needed you needed more less of the all the Fonda stuff at the beginning and just had had to split up differently and had those four couples interact with one another some way then maybe Maybe this works, but it, then now you're just left with, oh, I liked this or I liked the Maggie. Because most people, when you walk away with this, I like the Maggie Smith and Michael Caine stuff because, again, that was really kind of heartbreaking and touching. Once you once you find out that Michael Caine is homosexual and he's, he's basically, a, you know, Maggie Smith's his beard and they're living this marriage of convenience and it works for them because they make you laugh and it's, you know, and, and but they're also kind of mean to one another. It, it, that's a interesting story. Um, the the all the Fonda stuff is slight, but at least they play it well. The other stuff is just like this slapsticky. It's it's, fi- it's, it's filler. Weird. It's, it's throwaway. It's, it's, it's filler. And and I, I mean, I think Elaine May's part could have been anyone because she's not really given anything to do. Right. And the stuff that she's the stuff that she's good at, the stuff that we saw her excel at in A New Leaf, she has no room to do that anyway. It seems I mean, like all of these things there would be would have been things that she would have been comfortable doing, and that they probably paid relatively well. Oh, sure. I mean, sure. But I can't imagine her getting anything like really out of these roles that that was substantial. Like, and obviously she didn't get much of a bump. Like, I think if you go back and look at reviews, most of the times they're talking about her. I mean, they're talking mm-hmm. about what. But I mean, it really it doesn't like lead to. There's no Elaine May starring comedy, right? No. Well. There's, well. In the spirit. <laughs> right. So 12 years later. 12 years later. We're, and with a Jeannie Berlin, who's uh, Elaine May's daughter, 
uh, script. Um, she stars an extremely independent film. Yeah. Directed by a well thought of, kind of renowned acting coach. Right. Who, very much like Elaine May on A New Leaf, didn't look like she knew where to point the camera. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, so you want to give a rundown of what? Um, yeah, I'll try here. So <laughs> this is this is a movie really about kind of fate and destiny, as a voiceover tells us in the beginning. We have three women. Elaine May's character is named. I can't remember. I just watched this this morning. <laughs> um, Elaine May's character is named Marianne. Marlo Thomas plays Riva, and Jeannie Berlin plays Crystal, who is a hooker um, and a porn star. And a porn star, yeah. And she starring, finally got her name like above the title, starring in Crystal um, Crystal's balls. As she says, "I suck cock, but never swallowed up. No- never swallowed nothing." <laughs> Anyway, these three women are sort of brought together um, by fate. Um, Elaine May and her husband, played by Peter Falk, move out to California for his job, but he gets fired, so they move back to New York where they kept their co-op apartment. Marlo Thomas plays a kind of new age... Uh, food store owner, like new psychic, age, psychic. Ah, it's weird. It's, I'm never really sure like what she actually is, but she's like, oh, I can help you kind of redecorate, sort of fix up your apartment. So Elaine May gives her $10,000 to do that, and the apartment's a disaster. It's like falling apart. It's all torn up. So she stays with Peter Falk and Elaine May stay with Marlo Thomas <laughs> in the spare bedroom that she has kept for her nephew who is who's dead, dead. <laughs> right and she can't move any of this stuff so it's just in, in the off chance that he comes back and they're there for like weeks now Marlo Thomas's character her whole thing is that she helps people people need her help and, and, and she can't like not help people so she's helping Crystal right Jeannie Berlin's character this, this hooker she's helping her kind of I don't know become better stop eating meat right um, take care of herself yeah and get, a, get on right. a better diet and, she's got dried out hair and, and, it, and her skin is bad but look she's saving her money so she can go to school and be a bartender because <laughs> it's got to be a better job than- <laughs> right. right so it turns out if I get this right because I, I mean this was the plot is it's all over the is place weird yeah. it turns out that a lot of Crystal's characters were mobsters and crooked cops and she kept this notebook with like information somehow they found out they, um, she gives the notebook to Peter Falk and Elaine May, and this she's is trying to hide it. Basically. She's trying to hide it. And she's like, you know, don't tell, don't tell anybody where this is. And that's where we see Peter Falk's like bare ass because he's just in the room like naked on the phone, yeah, which is which is a job which, interview. Yeah, sure, makes sense. Look. But what I love is that Peter Falk's like, I've never met a more boring hooker. <laughs> I didn't know a prostitute could be so boring. <laughs> so, people come looking for the notebook. And they kill Crystal, and then they come. And Peter Falk leaves. Peter Peter Falk, Falk goes, just disappears, right? Right. But he's tired of living in the in the room, and like he's tired of being uh, jobless. But yes, yeah, so right. he just he can't he can't do. It. And he's 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 been having panic attacks ever since they moved back into right. the co- into, right. into, into right. the into right. the room. So like he basically has had enough, and he leaves Elaine May. Hmm. Um, and but, just, but, he, but he's he, just like gone. He's just gone. He's yeah. just gone from the movie. I mean, he just like disappears from the film. He's never, he never comes back. Right. I mean, but again, like these directing choices are so odd and so weird. It is a bizarre script. So they, they, they come looking for Crystal's notebook in Elaine May's place. She freaks out. Right. These cops come again. Blah, blah, blah. 
anyway, it turns out they go on the run. Elaine May and, and Margot Thomas go on the run, and they're going to trap the killer. Right, So they they end up like this ashram. Right? I don't know what else to call <laughs> right. it. Right, they, They're like in the attic. Um, well, they, they go on the run because, right, because they because they start to get like menacing things start happening. To right. Them. So Chris, it, Crystal's dead. They meet up with one of Crystal's friends who's played by Melanie Griffith in a great like uh, cameo role. Right, but but a role that she <clears throat> didn't need to do anymore. No, no. By this time, she would have been a big star. Right. Like this would have been like a personal favor at this point. Um, this whole movie is like a personal favor. <laughs> it really, really is. And so they meet with Melanie Griffith and they start to come to, they start to put together that Crystal was hooked up with the mob and with some corrupt cops. And it seems like <clears throat> the corrupt cops and the mobsters potentially have a line on Marlo Thomas and Elaine May. They start to, um, they get into this car that's drive away, but they realize once they get in, they can't get out. Like they've been trapped in this car because the mobsters have pulled out the, um, you know, the door handles and they've locked everything. And they're they're taking, trying to carbon monoxide. Right, right, right. Them. They're able to get out. And so they get free, they get spooked and they decide to go on the run and, 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 and go on the run and then kind of like, then turn the tables on the people who are chasing them who they don't really know even if they're being chased at all um, but they're going to then set up home alone style traps right, for, right. for these mobsters in this uh, kind of remote house that they're in they end up staying in yeah and, and this guy is like so before they take off right they stop by Marlo Thomas's spiritual advisors house played by Olympia Dukakis <laughs> again like this this walk on roll you're like why are you here <laughs> so I just found that interesting and then they yeah they go to another sort of spiritual place that, that Marlo Thomas knows of and, and says I told him that your husband's crazy and he's letting us stay here for free and he's like this kind of zen monk but not a zen monk right, right? And, and, and they can't stay with Olympia Dukakis because like she's got a couple kids on drugs and like <laughs> <laughs> so like her life is in shambles as well <laughs> but I love that they go to this like ashram I'm gonna keep calling it an ashram and uh, the guy's like you know anything you need from me and they go oh do you have a handgun or a hunting rifle he's like of course take my dog too <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so they set up all these like Home Alone style traps. They make a dummy. They hide in trees. They keep a lookout, and eventually, and they finally crack the code of the of the of Crystal's uh, diary, library, June Bible, what they call it. Yeah. And they realize that they put this, they start putting together names of the mobsters and of the crooked cops. They end up. This is why I get, I get kind of lost. They called somebody. They called. Either they called the cops or somebody called them and basically Elaine May tells them exactly how to get to the house. Uh -huh. And so the cop that is, it turns out that the cop, there's a cop whose name is in the notebook and he needs to get it back because he's, he doesn't want to be tied to these mobsters if the cops were ever to find the Bible. So he is trying to get it back. He doesn't really even seem to be that menacing or trying to, I mean, he's going to kill them because they know, but that's really all. That's really, that's really the only reason why. <laughs> oh, that's it. That's like, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, he's able to, to, to suss out their, their traps. They make this dummy <clears throat> and he's able to use it to, to, to set off some of the traps. So they all get caught up in this upstairs attic of this ashram that they're in, <laughs> whether or not it's in the, the ashram, or, you know, whether or not it's an yeah. ashram or not. Um, <laughs> 
And it, it, he goes, they, they, they've kept this June Bible, the, the notebook, in a cooler that has electronics in it that's uh, like, a, like an iron and a, a, a hair dryer that's, that are plugged in. So this thing's been electrified the entire, which is not how any of this would work. But, no. <laughs> but regardless of that matter. And then Marlo Thomas tries to warn the crooked, the crooked cop of to not reach into the water. He doesn't get why she's saying that. And he reaches in um, and he electrocutes himself. And that's basically that's it. The it. cop, the, and then the cops come <laughs> in, in the best line of the movie. The cops come to take the crooked cops. Uh, no, the the, the um, paramedics come to take the crooked cops' electrocuted body away, and they fall into a hole, <laughs> a trap, a trap hole. Dug and this Marlo Thomas and, and it's like, they, yeah, they were really good traps, weren't they? There's just like this, there's a there's a sweetness and a, and like and like when the the guy gets there to the ashram and is like, and they're trying to get around the traps, and Elaine May's like running, and you see her like kind of <laughs> like fall into the hole out front. There's some really good about this movie, but overall, like the direction is so bad. One thing I think they should have kept, because when you're first watching this, this feels like a Paul Thomas Anderson, like you're watching Magnolia. It's got the or like the Royal Tenenbaums. Like this is like the voice, the narrator has got an amazing voice, and, and it, they do a really good job of like not so much explaining the plot, but like keeping you. You know, I don't know, pulled in because he he keeps talking about how there are certain aspects of one's life where you can turn around and, and right the wrongs that you've made, or you can you can, you can not, say no, right? You can change your fate, but once a certain event has happened, you can no longer change that fate. So when Crystal dies, he can no longer change that fate. So, but it's but he's coming. The the, the narrator comes in at these little vignettes, um, and like is this is real calming voice, and, it, and he's talking about like again, he's just talking about faith and metaphysics. And 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 and, and it, I don't know. I felt like had they kept that throughout the entirety of the movie, this would have made a lot more yeah, sense. It yeah. comes back into the very very end, but they drop it about once they leave. And this movie, once Crystal dies, this movie becomes a lot less interesting. Like it, it's just because I think Marlo Thomas and Elaine May are, are a fun couple together. And when they are when they are dressed up as hookers, <laughs> trying and they're working with Melanie, Melanie Griffith, that's really funny. Mm-hmm. But. I, then, then once they're on the lamb, it just it, it loses a lot of its luster and and it loses a lot of its coherence. And like I don't know, it just it like I said, this is just directed really, really poorly. She never directs anything ever again. But like the, a lot of the scenes are just they're just framed badly. I mean, they, they don't they don't like the, the action is off to the corner. You start losing people, and it's it was just like I I found myself like I don't know what the hell I'm watching right, here. Right. And for a movie that needs like like a like a Home Alone type um, <clears throat> understanding of the Rube Goldbergness of all of these traps, you've got none of that. Nope. Which it could have been a lot of fun. That could have been a really fun aspect of this. Although by that time. You would have already seen Home Alone, so we're going to be kind of a and Deadly Games, <laughs> right? And Code Noel, uh, but I had um, really never heard of this. Um, I hadn't either until I knew that they had done a film. I knew that her and her daughter didn't film together, but I'd always heard it was just really kind of a slight thing that was kind of ignored. But uh, um, and I can see why. I mean, like I can't imagine this. Like it, 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 it played in I think New York and L.A. and that's basically it. And then lost to I, I would imagine it's never been on DVD. <laughs> Not that that's any sort of like indicator, but for a 1990 film to be this lost, you know, just 30 years later with starring, I mean, Jeannie Bernan is not a huge household name, and I mean, 
mean, but Marlo Tom, I think they would have both been in fine. I mean, it was it had enough names in it above the title that this should have been like a oh, is this like fried green tomatoes or something? Like we could have like pulled this up from like the the depths of the video shelf hell. But yeah, uh, but yeah, no, but it is, just doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, it it's a film that does not exist, and it's on YouTube if you want to watch it. Um, yeah, but the direct the choices are so weird, and if you don't see people's faces enough. You don't. I mean, there's a scene where they're on the phone and like you can't really tell like who's it's just a it's a complete mess it makes me wonder why Jeannie didn't direct this herself right like if, like if you have um, you've written the script and the timeline would have been you could have gotten a million dollars to get this made no problem and this couldn't have cost that much like I don't know why she doesn't direct this, self, this herself similar to the Sundance and at least get some sort of yeah. like um, indie darling uh, sort of notoriety around it but especially because it could have been seen as a reclamation project for May after Ishtar let's let's oh we've we've demolished her now let's see what she does mm-hmm. on this very mm-hmm. much a smaller scale but it was such a such an awful outing it's you know it's one of those things where it's almost like Jeannie once Jeannie Berlin leaves the movie the movie is done and, yeah. and this is a 30 minute movie once she's gone and, yep. and it had she been able to some like had they not killed her had you just gotten uh, like Melanie Griffith's character and killed her and that been the the scaring point for then like Crystal and Mary Ann and Rena Arriva to go uh, run away then that makes that- a that makes a fun like little like then they could have played off of each other a lot mm-hmm, better. Mm-hmm. and you and you then you still have the the vulgarity of Crystal juxtaposed against the the airheadedness of Marlo Thomas and the kind of like you know the level headedness of Elaine May in yeah. this case. and the kind of upper 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 classness of Elaine May right. in that role too is this the only movie that we watch where Elaine May curses. Oh, is it? Wait, does she not curse in anything in the in the Woody Allen stuff? I don't oh. think so. Because she drops an f bomb. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but she, I, I'm pretty sure she doesn't in Small Time Crooks, and I don't believe she does in Crisis and Six. I don't think so either. I think you're right. So this might be the only time that she curses on yeah. the screen. Well, the that's the best thing about this film. <laughs> the second the second best thing about this film is the piece that May wrote for the New York Times about this film, which is kind of like a fictionalized interview with Julian Schlossberg, <laughs> whose name listeners will recognize from me butchering it in past episodes. <laughs> but he produced it, and she wrote this thing where it's like a back and forth with him, but it's clearly not him. <laughs> and she ends the the this like little essay with, and I knew it was time to finish this when I'd reached 19. 19- 1,986 words and like that's it it's it's good yeah it's, it was a New York Times piece and it's it, it's pretty funny so that was the best thing about about that for me alright well, let's get into Woody Allen baby <laughs> okay so in this film right what, this is 2000 Yes. Correct. Yeah, this is right in, I think, a pretty decent sweet spot for uh, mid-era Allen films. I don't like Woody Allen. I, I think, you know, I mean, <laughs> I don't like Curse. I don't think Curse of the Jade Scorpion. I think what he does after this is it gets to be kind of bad. Like, there's a s- slew of films that are bad. Uh, but... Uh, everyone says I love you, sweet and low down, and um, deconstructing Henry. I think are probably 
three of his better films. I if you don't like his film. I, here's the thing: when I was watching these movies, and I was watching, um, yeah. it, and again, I not like we talked about the Cosby stuff. I don't want to get into the Alan stuff. No, no, no. But like Alan, I I think there's a. It's almost like. Ayn Rand. Like, you outgrow <laughs> Alan at a certain point, right? Sure, sure. Because at a certain point, it it, it just, it's just the same fucking, I mean, and look, well, I, this he, is, but this is the worst of it, right? Yes. It's it's the same character over and over well, and I over again. I think Crisis and Sixteen's the worst. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> fucking. And, and here's the thing, I know there's, I know there's Alan stands out there, and especially if you, sure. can, if you can separate all the other shit, um, but, I, and, and I, but I, th- those movies that I talked about, I mean, except for everyone says I love you, which he is not the central character of. They're they're Alan stand-ins, right? I like Scoop and I like Matchpoint as well. So I like Matchpoint. I was gonna say I like Matchpoint, uh, but I mean that's the least Alan film of. Like, but I like that because it's also sort of a retelling of Crime and Punishment in sure. a certain way. So right, I mean right. that's because I'm a fucking nerd. Um, <laughs> Because when I say like I don't like Woody Allen, it's not. I mean, yes, it is the other stuff, but it's more like I don't like him. I don't like his character. I don't like his acting. I don't like all the stuff. I don't like Owen Wilson playing Woody Allen. I don't like Jason Biggs playing Woody Allen. I don't like Kenneth Branagh playing Woody Allen. These are things that I just I don't like, and um, I don't look some of his early stuff. Right? I mean, what? What? Annie Hall, Manhattan. Uh, Manhattan uh, Crimes and misdemeanor. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, these things. Husband, the, the, yeah, these things are these things are good. I understand that they're good, um, but yeah, like you said, I think after a while, I'm just like, I'm done. I'm out on this guy. I'm done. <clears throat> these movies that are so clearly just extensions of his stand-up. While there are some, I, I think I, I actually do like his stand-up. I think some of I like Woody Allen stand-up comic is a is a really good stand-up album. And again, it's one that probably doesn't translate to the hilarity that it was then to, to now. But I still think it's a good. I think. It's a good record I, but the movies where he is clearly just doing his stand up sometimes it really works and sometimes it just it gets to be grating and annoying what I really found um, disturbing about <clears throat> small times crooks is the bizarre misogyny and like and not and like violence that he has that he's that he that seems to be kind of coming off as like he wants to come off like a honeymooners vibe because this is clearly Woody Allen stepping into a blue collar role. He's no longer the the coastal intellectual elitist. Mm-hmm. He's now just this average Joe, which he's always kind of like skirted the line and tried to paint himself as both anyway. But this one, it seems like he thinks that that violence against women and threatened violence against anyone, even if it's ignored, it was just really like it stood out to me for some reason when I was watching this. It was just like that's I don't know. It, it really it, was kind of disgusting. No, me too, me too. Because he, you know, he, when he's doing it, he's asking Frenchie, his his wife, played by Tracy Ullman, for their savings so he can sort of you know put on this caper. His his partners in crime are there as well and so he's trying to act the man trying to act tough trying to act the hard guy and he's like Frenchie I'm gonna get violent I'm gonna and one like no one buys it but even then you're like why are you are you putting on this act for these other guys are you putting on this act for us because you think it's funny and we're gonna think it's funny because it's not it's 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 pretty cringeworthy right it's gross um, yeah, it's gross, and and so like on one hand, like violence against women is gross, but then uh, uh, oh, don't wanna, we don't want to go out on a ledge, <laughs> right, right, right. If you but, did not, I know that that's like a hot take, but also this idea of of 
of this one man trying to act tough in front of other men is also gross. And so I think you get this kind of confluence of these just two gross kind of typical like toxic masculinity acts. Right. And and the only reason you put it in there is because you think it's funny. Right. The only because everything about this movie, every line is supposed to be funny. And so to that end, it, what it seems to say is then Woody Allen, this is how Woody Allen views these blue collar characters and that he's writing, which is mm-hmm. obviously still himself, is that we're all, you know, uh, Fred Flintstone, you know, the, you know, these characters and it, and it, but it, but it really just it adds nothing to the role. So step, take a step back. Yeah. Small Time Crooks is a movie about, um, uh, basically kind of a set of bumbling criminals. Crooks, yeah. And um, Woody Allen is at the, he's the brain of, of all these crooks. You know, it was sarcastic. <laughs> right. It, it was called, sarcastic. We called him that because it was sarcastic. <laughs> I'm not going to say this movie's not funny. I actually like Small Time Crooks. I, I don't, I don't love this movie. Um, but when I saw it the first time, it was just when it actually came out, I, I thought it was pretty good. Um, so this, so there's a set of crooks that they drive across, they, they drive past this pizza place that's shut down and they are all going to pool their money to lease the pizza place so they can tunnel into a bank that's a couple stores over. Now, they're idiots, um, of course, so that goes awry. But uh, Tracy Ullman is a... Yeah, she's a she's a kind of a budding cook. She's married to she's Baker. She, yes, and and she's married to Woody Allen, and she's the one who controls the purse string. So he has to go to her to get his his six thousand dollars, his portion of the cut to, to lease out this building. Um, and and so they need her to to cook and, and to bake and to fr- to be a front for the store, so they can do their so they can do their digging in the back without being without being disturbed. Now she's a cookie baker, and the cookies that she bakes end up taking off, and that's where they, how they become successful. So um, they end up having to. Uh, well, we have to introduce Elaine May at this point because Elaine May is her cousin. Yes, her right. cousin. So, well, a couple things. So they they go to they take they go to lease the pizza place, but it's already been leased by another crook that they had. They knew it also in in jail, played by John Lovitz, who wants to burn the place down. So they have <laughs> insurance to insurance money, right? Because I you know I burned things. I sent two college two kids through college by burning stuff down. <laughs> really, that was a funny line. That was too. funny. Yeah. Um, so they bring him in, uh, and the cookie store the cookie store becomes way more successful than. Uh, they had ever imagined. Now, all the while, Woody Allen and his and Michael Rappaport and I forget the other guy's name. Who, um, uh, Tony Darrow. Right? Tony Darrow and John Lovitz yeah. are all in the bottom digging, but they dig through the wrong place. They dig up through a, a dress shop. Um, they brought Elaine May in to help uh, help with the <laughs> help so co- help help up front. Yeah, to help right? Tracy Ullman yeah. with the cookies. And Ullman and May in this are are delicious. They are, they are both so good. Yeah. And which is probably the reason I really really like this movie. But but Elaine May plays this. Kind of dullard, uh, who d- who basically takes everything at face value, and so when she goes down, she starts hearing drilling noises in in the basement. Um, she goes down to ask what's going on, and Woody Allen tells her that they're expanding. She goes up, and 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 while a TV crew is coming to the cookie shop. She announces that we're expanding. We're expanding into a tea room next door. And there's a cop who's a repeat customer. This cop loves these cookies, and he's like, "What do you mean?" And like, and she's like, "Oh yeah, the guys are digging in the back to this tea room in the in the nail shop next door." And of course, he catches wise to what actually is going on, so he stops them. But since they didn't technically break any laws, he just wants cut in so he can help them franchise. That's the first act of this movie, essentially. Is it's like, franchising the cookie. They the franchise cookie the cookie shop. stores out. So now they become all these these nouveau rich 
um, jackasses who you, they jettison their other friends, and now it's Tracy Ullman and Elaine May and Woody Allen. Really, just Tracy Ullman and May trying to navigate the the upper crust uh, because they are now wealthier. This is a Beverly Hills Billy hillbilly type scenario yeah. where they're all yeah. wealthier now than the wealthiest of the upper crust. They come across uh, Hugh. They they throw this party, and it's very Trump esque. It's all gold lame and like everything Leopard is print. right. It's all gross and like everyone it's garish and it's 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 expensive garish taste. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I think Trump esque <laughs> probably described it better. <laughs> and so the upper crust they throw this they throw this dinner party because uh, Ullman desperately wants to become you know part a of sophisticated the, a sophisticated yes, and she overhears them all talking about how. How you know garish and 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 how badly how bad their tastes are. Somebody actually said, "Oh, this is Trumpy." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so enter Hugh Grant, who is the debonair, um, dashing, worldwise uh, educated man who sweeps Tracy Ullman off, and like she she decides to pay him to show her the world and to and to educate her on the finer things in life, and of course. Grant is also a grifter who is trying to worm his way into Tracy Ullman's life. So he eventually gets Ullman and Alan to split up. Alan has started spending time with Elaine May because she's simple and he he longs for that lifestyle that he had before they had all the money. Uh, and he still longs for the juice. He still wants to be able to commit crimes. And so he devises a plan to steal a necklace. Um, all the while, they've decided to split up. Ullman and, and Alan have decided to split up. But it turns out that um, Ullman trusted the wrong accountants. All of their money was embezzled. And Grant leaves. Uh, Alan comes back with uh, with Ullman. And they, um, they go back to living the life they lived before. At, so, but at the, the heist, right at the party. So, so Woody <laughs> Allen is invited to this to this party. Uh, the woman who who owns the house, who's having the party, has this really famous, expensive necklace that she keeps in a safe upstairs in her bedroom. And he knows this because he was there for a dinner party before and kind of scouted the place. So he gets he gets Elaine May to go with him and kind of be a diversion. And she's hilarious in this scene. <laughs> and he he makes a, a, a duplicate of the necklace. Right, he can switch them out without being detected and of course he gets fumbled up in Woody Allen style and, and ends up stealing the duplicate can I can I point Please. out a couple a couple lines from Elaine May so she's very nervous around people right and she's trying to make a distraction she's trying to distract people from going upstairs so Woody Allen can take time to break open but I love how she she's not good at mingling so she just starts talking about the weather he tells her it's cloudy today with <laughs> She just stopped reading the weather. He tells report. her just to, to not to, what if people ask is what to to talk to her about. She's just to stick to the weather. So, yeah. So, so she just, just starts. Reading but it's the like she has all the weather reports, and she meets this guy, and this guy's like, "You're really funny," and he starts talking about, "Oh, I haven't." Um, what is what does he say? He talks about his like dead wife Helen. And he says, oh, you know, I haven't been able to talk to a woman like this since my since Helen died. And she goes, was Helen your wife or just a woman who died? (laughs) (laughs) A guy comes around with like hors d'oeuvres and she she goes, oh, I hate anything with a toothpick. (laughs) They lodge in your throat. I don't don't eat any food with toothpicks. They They lodge in your throat. They always get lodged in your throat. And then as they're leaving. She tells Woody Allen, I met a wonderful man who said I reminded him of his dead wife. I assume he meant when she was alive. 
<laughs> but her delivery is so deadpan. And so, I mean, this, this kind of goes back to some of the things that she did in A New Leaf, where these deliveries are so kind of nuanced and deadpan. And there's this twinkle in her eye, right, that's almost a wink to us. But uh, it's... <laughs> She cracks me up in this. Oh, and when she has a bowl. (laughs) 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 How are we going to say what the, I'm sorry, what was the, can't even bring yourself to say it anymore. (laughs) Woody Allen is up cracking the safe and he's got a stethoscope. And <laughs> she thinks he needs it because he's. <laughs> they diagnosed it as Parkinson's, but it might be Ebola. <laughs> She's like, All right, sorry. Oh. Back to the top of the podcast again. This is I, I. This is why I wonder why. Like, was was she just turning Alan down, or did would he just not realize that? Because I, I, I'm sure that they were friends around in the same circle. Well, he wrote and, this for her, right? So yeah. I mean, like, why, why weren't you using her? It, almost in every film that you were that you were putting out, like I just don't know, like, and you had to, he had to have been a student and and like known of them because they would have come up at the same oh, time. Oh, I mean, like, for sure. So like, it's like, why did you wait this long to put her in? Yeah, I think. And one of your what is considered one of your lesser movies? Yeah, I, I think these are answer or you know questions we're never going to have answers to because she's never going to answer them. Sure. Right. And and you know she's what eighty eight. Yeah, she's no? she's up there. Um, she's not going to start now. Is what I mean. She's <laughs> not going to start answering these questions now. Right. But I think there's really some interesting stuff that must have gone on where she was still working and doing things, but very kind of sporadically and only when she wanted to. And and like we're we're sitting here looking about this, talking about this kind of inconsequential Woody Allen film and going, you know, I mean, it's great content, me laughing into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so, it's so funny. Yeah. And, and what she, and again, it's what she brings to it. It's not like he had this... I don't know. You had this like this gym that you just decided to hide, and you just never decided to use until yeah. until small time crooks, like that. And again, I know that that elevates this movie. And by the time we get to Crisis and Six Scenes, the people that are working with Alan are only people who are worked with him in the past, or, yeah. or people who need that kind of boost. Because at this point, you know, regardless of whether you where you fall into the legality of everything that occurred. You know, it, 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 he's persona non grata for American actors that don't right. that ever want to act again without having to answer that fucking question. Yeah. And except for Amazon, who would <laughs> right. just throw money at people. I mean, especially in 2016. Right. And all that would have come out. Like, I mean, the 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 Me Too stuff, like where we were really truly holding people's feet to the fire. Amazon got in bed, and because they intended for this to this Woody Allen thing to be a boon, like this yeah. was going to oh they got Allen, like a guy who like what is he thinking? Kind of like why does he need this? And because he's coming off of Blue Jasmine, and I mean like he's coming off of, of movies that uh, you know Midnight in Paris was. Uh-huh. I mean I, you know again these are really high highly regarded films, kind of like a resurgence. And then he comes in and like, I mean, and of course, I understand why he does it, because Amazon probably backs a truckload of cash up to him and also allows him to get funding for these types of things outside of the foreign market, because most all of his like later stuff, 
the way that he gets his money because he's not his movies yeah. aren't making money in the United States. No, Melinda and Melinda is not making money in the United States. Cafe, Cafe Society wasn't I, Wonder Wheel an Amazon film too. Everything yeah. after everything after, after Crisis and Six was. Scenes. So there's like Rifkin's something something, and then Wonder Wheel and A Rainy, Rainy Day in New, New York, York, right? Which is the Eisenberg Gomez movie, which I haven't seen any of those. But yeah, so I mean, it, it's. I don't know. I forgot where I was going with that. Well, but, yeah. but, but you had, people working with Woody Allen at that. You time. had Elaine May, you know, and you knew how to use her, and you put her in small time crooks where you didn't put her in. Like you have, and I don't want to denigrate anybody else, but like you have a role, you know, it, you you could have paired her up with Alan Alda instead of Goldie Hawn in Everyone Says I Love You. Yeah. There's all different kinds of roles where she could have fit in and really truly taken these films, and because it, it wasn't like she was a one note player. I mean, she was best when she was doing this this physical comedy where she's playing kind of like dumber than the room, you know, that that, that allows for her, but. That's not the only thing she ever did, and that's certainly not the only thing that she brought to But this also goes back to that idea of Yiddish theater. I mean, this right. is this is dry sarcasm, right? This dry kind of biting humor that she's doing, maybe not so much biting, but this dry humor that she's doing in Small Time Crooks, that she was similar to what she was doing in A New Leave. Right, so, right. So we want to wrap up Elaine's career. I mean, she's done things since Crisis in 16. She actually did like a COVID-based thing, which I haven't seen. I haven't either. But after Crisis and Crisis in 16, she won a Tony. Yes, that's for, true. For uh, the, the revival of the Kenneth Lonergan play, The Waverly Galleries, I believe, directed by Lila Newberg. Um, so, yeah, she won a Tony. She's the second oldest actress to win a Tony. Um, so, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Congrats. I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> thank we, thank we, you. I'll, I'll, we'll I'll pass to, it on to we'll her. We need I, to send her some flowers. When I talk, I, uh, there's a cease and desist order. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so small time crooks is not funny. <laughs> or, um, I'm sorry, crisis and oh. crisis and so I, I actually, like, I actually like, I like small time crooks. Right. No, no, no. I, think I think it's, I think Ullman and May lift it to the point where it's, it's fun to watch. I think the cringy. I misspoke. Stuff, I think the cringy Allen stuff is a little disconcerting, yeah. but it. I and I don't care for. I like like love. It's everyone else is is fine. I, I don't. I'm not a big Grant fan, right. but regardless. Yeah. But yes, Crisis and Six Scenes is not funny. Yeah, because I, I mean I agree with you on Small Time. It's not. Yeah. Uh, get rid of the Allen stuff, but I mean I was. No one. You heard me crying. Laughing <laughs> yeah, but Crisis and Six Scenes is just not. Okay, so. I can Crisis of Six Scenes. It's a period piece set in the seventies, mid-century. Maybe it's got Vietnam 60s. era. Yeah, um, and, and right in the middle of the Vietnam era, we're with this. I want to. They're Jewish couple that are kind of New York suburbanites. That um, he's a he's a middling writer. Alan's a middling writer. May is his wife, and she's a marriage counselor. Does marriage counseling out of her home. That should have been the series. That would have been funny. That would have been funny. That had all of the potential. Like, I'll lay this all out when I come back to that. So they um, have, I don't how do they get involved with these young people? Sure. So uh, Jason Margaro, or John Margaro, I'm sorry, Yeah. Um, plays 
the son of family friends. It's Jason Momoa. <laughs> Jason Momoa, John Magara. Okay. Right. Plays the, the son of family friends who's staying with him while he's going to NYU. Okay. And he's going to go into business and he's going to go work, I believe, for his father. Miley Cyrus plays uh, an anti-war radical, a member of a... Um, What's the weather? Oh, the weather underground. The weather under. But uh, uh, like a, that, a member of like a, a weather underground like group. Um, she's a radical communist, um, and she is an old family friend of Elaine May's, and so she is on the run from the cops. She's broken out of prison. She's bro- she's blown herself out of prison, yeah, and she's yeah. on the run from the cops. And then so she breaks into their house one you know late one night. And so that's how they get that wrapped up with these kids. So you know, by happenstance, Magaro is is also engaged to be married to Rachel Brosnahan. I think that's how you say yes. her name. Yeah. Um, and it, and so, but he starts to become enamored with Miley Cyrus's character, and she starts infusing all of these communist ideas into this Jewish group of people in suburban New York. And at the day, I don't know if I should even mention that they're Jewish. It's just, it just, it's kind of, I don't know if it's important to the plot necessarily, but. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's hard not to mention, I think, the Jewishness with any Woody Allen role because I think he, I mean, he he plays that and he, and he is, is playing that character. Right. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're stuck with everyone who's kind of living these mediocre lives who has this woman enter in there who's exciting and is introducing new ideas. Elaine May is a marriage counselor who runs marriage counseling out of her home um, to some uh, to, to varying degrees of success. But she also has a book club. Yeah. Um, the book club starts reading people like Marx and, and Lennon. And, and so Chairman Mao. Chairman Mao, yes. Because he has those great jackets. <laughs> Yeah. Don't give this movie more credit. This, this yeah, I know, more, I'm sorry. This more credit than that's worth. <laughs> no, no, but that was I was watching that scene where like these these women in their seventies, seventies and eighties are reading Chairman Mao's book and they're talking and I'm like, I could watch this. Right. There are there 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 is stuff here. And the narcissistic side of Alan who can't let the story exist outside of himself. If you ever told a female, a true female story, this would have been, this could have been, like if he just let himself sit in the background. So the whole story, basically everyone gets caught up in this Miley Cyrus, um, you know, drama as she's trying to escape from the cops. Elaine May and um, Woody Allen to get her to her next destination get involved in this plot to so they want to get her to Cuba I believe mm-hmm. and they um, come in this plot of, of trying to get money to Black Panthers this Cuban money to Black Panthers so they can smuggle her over to Cuba the Magaro falls and starts to fall in love with her he decides to start building bombs on his own <laughs> and he's going to follow her to Cuba but it, it all turns out that his, uh, his his fiance is actually pregnant. It's all a big muddled mess that comes out, and it's all and all of it at the end. There's this big like end of the series scene where everybody's still involved. There's dysfunctional couples that May needs to counsel. There's the book club that's all chanting for Mao and and Marx. Two Black Panthers. Two Black up. Panthers show up who they they, they they say play for the Detroit Tigers. Detroit, no, they're Detroit Tigers. Um, the cops show up. The that Magaro's blown himself up with the bomb. His parents show up, his fiance shows up, and it's all this kind of like kumbaya. It's very much like a lot of other Allen films where this kind of all all these like scenarios culminate um, 
and to a kind of to a crescendo and an ensemble just, musical piece, right? And then just kind of and then peter out, and everyone's going back to their their normal milk toast lives after this is all over. Mm-hmm. It's it, it is the, they broke it up into a series. I you know I think Amazon was like, look, we need something more than from you than just a movie. Mm-hmm. We need something that's going to get people to come back and watch week after week, even if we dump all this. Because I don't think Amazon was dumping like the way Amazon does their series is it's weekly. It's I have no idea. Or sometimes they do like. Depending on the the run or the length of the run, they'll do two at a time or three right. at a time. So I have no idea how this was released, but this basically breaks down to a two and a half hour Woody mm-hmm. Allen film, mm-hmm. which allows him to indulge in all of the things that he's bad at. It allows him to indulge himself with making him the the primary focus of a lot of the scenes, um, and it's it's just i don't know it's 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 annoying and grating and all the good stuff is given short secondhand drift i mean it's just the book club is awesome the, the counseling the is counseling awesome. is awesome and like i would have loved to have seen a slew of characters like lewis black and his wife like the scene the scene where there's a marriage counseling scene where she brings in and like the the husband has been paying hookers for sex because he finds that exciting so Elaine May tells him to pay his wife as if she were a hooker they come back the next time and his wife wants more money and he's like I'm not going to pay my wife $700 to sleep with her and she's like what do you don't think I, I'm worth that and Elaine May's like it's all just money right it's just all just your money he's like I'm not paying my wife I can go out and get I'm not paying my wife $700 to have sex with her like those like scenarios that could have been an entire like you had, had you have focused this on a weekly series on the yeah. counseling. Yeah, a Dr. Katz type of like thing and made this around Elaine, given this the series around Elaine May. It'd be like Elaine May's Newhart show. God, it would have been the amazing. first the first Newhart show. And 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 so th- this is the problem that Alan has at this point is that he can't get people who know how to do his dialogue anymore to work with him. And so you're stuck with Miley Cyrus. And I don't I'm not again, Miley Cyrus, I don't what you think of her as an artist or you know whatever, she can't pull off. Mm-mm. Woody Allen dialogue and Allen can't direct it um, he keeps all of most of the best lines for himself like and so and again it's all still his his stand up there's some funny like he got that from Charlie Chan there's some funny lines in there that are pretty good but over a two and a half hour movie man you're just like and, and this drags so much in the middle and when you do focus on the love story between Magaro and Cyrus again you never buy it and you everything's so telegraphed here like this didn't need like you didn't need to set up a movie and break it up into six episodes what you needed to do was develop a tv show mm-hmm. and have an arc but but everything is so telegraphed here because you're so familiar with with alan films that you know where this is going there's no stakes to any of this it's all handled so lightheartedly and like and again not that it needs to be overwrought or dramatic but you need to have some sort of like I need to have some sort of reason to come check back in next week because there's nothing going on in here and like some of these episodes were like 18 minutes long like there was just they were weirdly like like paced and like he clearly did not know how to work in this medium and had he been able to create a two hour movie and cut it to be a two hour movie you probably would have lost a lot of like probably would have lost a ton of the the Cyrus stuff if you had had Cyrus introduced and then gone and like cut the whole love sequence out uh, like you could have had 
the Magaro be infected with the, the communist ideals, just like you had the book club infected with the communist ideals and still have him blow himself up and still have that be a thing and have the book club be this cute group of old ladies and Joy Behar <laughs> saying funny things about Mao. And that could have been like these little bits and pieces of a really funny movie that that was over in an hour 45 to an hour 50. Yeah. But instead, we're cutting this apart and you're giving him more room and like the movie should have focused on if you take it like from a small time Kirk's perspective it should have focused on May and Alan trying to do the right thing for Cyrus and and their bumbling of the of the plot to get her moved from you know upper side new you know uh, upper new york to cuba mm-hmm. in the 70s and having them just stumble over each other like going to uh you know plant the mo- money in a in a um you know in a in a phone booth while they're sitting in a cafe talking about how bad their lives yeah that's the good stuff that alan brings to the table and then this but this was it was oh, it was i don't know it was it was tough to get through it, it it really was it really it really was and, um and at this point sorry i mean stuff but no, it's okay. at, at this point like i, I don't have much again, to say about this one I mean, it's I, it's almost like an Ayn Rand thing. You just I've just outgrown listening to Alan Shtick at this point. We're not going to mention Ayn Rand like ever again. <laughs> no, I don't. But I'm just that whole idea where like you as a young <laughs> oh, as, know, as a I young know. movie goer, you're like you're 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 taught that <laughs> Annie Hall and Manhattan and these movies are seminal films, and then but but and then you start to dive in and you realize okay, well if all of his films aren't exactly the same, he's certainly the same in mm-hmm. all of them. Mm-hmm. He's not bringing anything to the table. And like uh, now, you know, what, however many years later, 60 years later, we're still like, you know, 50 years later, we're still having watched him do this, you know, befuddled New York routine. And it's just uh, I've seen this a hundred different times. I don't need to see it. It's not funny anymore. And it's 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 not new enough. It's not sharp enough. And the material is not good enough for me to sit through this yet again. Like it's not honed. It's just it's it's just the same thing. It's just it's just it's Woody Allen in another movie right. rather than an actual character. Right. And I get why he did all of this. Like the move, like this the the set pieces and the way that it looks is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. He clearly shows that he had a but like he's he hasn't had this type of budget in a really really long time because that movie, and again I know it's not a movie, but that <laughs> is is gorgeous to look at. I, I've, I've never seen anything that he's done. Like you take a look at Small Town Crooks. I mean, it's clearly he's just oh yeah. And compared to this, it's it's night and day. So like whoever he got to do his shots and like he's using all of the money that they're giving him and he's putting it on screen. Kudos to him. Man, this was boring as shit. Yeah, it was not. It was not engaging. And I, May is earnest, um, and I think she she plays it earnest. And I think there's some humor there. But again, I just don't. I think she's comfortable with what Alan is sure. trying to do. Right? And I think she can do the dialogue. She can kind of do the back and forth. And I think she's great in that. And they're kind of like bumbling high scene that they go through. She's good in that. They're both good in that. That that but, was the highlight for me. Yeah. Was when they're jumping over from building to building. Yeah, right, right. Right with the suitcase and it yeah. opens up and it's, oh, my God, the money. And the, and, and the scene with the cop and the briefcase and the woman in the phone booth. I don't jump anywhere where gravity is involved. <laughs> <laughs> Again, but that's, that's, but that's, that stuff is good, right? right. Those kind of like 
quick fire one-liners are really good. Yeah, this needs to be an hour and a half movie. <clears throat> I, I think there's a good movie in here. I think there's a good movie in here. I just don't like whatever they were trying to do and, and trying to fit. And he to. is too involved. He's too much like let me focus on me. Let me talk about like political stuff and let me him and haw. And it's just not. It doesn't. Right. Because right. you just want him to shut the fuck up. Well, and, and he's not that guy, right? This, this, right. This whole the, the whole subplot of him not being Salinger and if he's pulled over and, <laughs> so stupid right so, it, it, it is so right because yeah. again what the fuck does that add to it besides feeding Alan's ego c- character ego yeah. right it doesn't it doesn't add anything to it so had you made it a Elaine May movie and, and then again I know we've been spent four episodes on this shit and we've been talking about this right? right but had you made this Elaine May movie and you had him just be a a voice of annoyance in the background but in the background and letting her try to drag him along to get this girl out of their life so they can get back to their comfortable you know mediocre but but you know comfortable well, but comfortable well off lives this is a funny movie yeah, then it's and, funny. And, and then seeing all of that how like and, and there's something to be said there right about then having how just a little seed of this girl who pops up and drops a, a you know a Marx a, you know some Marxist thought points here and there and and, and how it it, it, you know, and how that plays in conversation, infects, right? Like and back it, and it, forth it between her the two, and her, and her, and her, you know, and her, her, the kid who's staying there, and the couples therapy, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's an interesting, uh-huh. that's an interesting idea that you could build off of. Instead, we're just a rambling mess, and like it's one of those things. Like it, it's, I, it, the problem with like looking at Alan's stuff is that there are enough Alan stands that they're going to forgive and love everything that he does. And like, there's, but I do, I don't think this was well reviewed, but, but if you go out and look, I mean, that's just people that are, Oh, this is funny and good. And I'm just like, eh, mm, no, you're not, you're not looking at this. Cra- like take a step away. <laughs> but this is, this is what happens. I think with, with fandom too. And I think this is a different conversation, right? Um, but this is what happens with fandom is that we like glom onto this. And then that, that artist, that person can do no wrong. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We can't see kind of critically that, oh, no, this is just, this is brilliant because everything he does is brilliant. And I mean, I know that like there are artists, there are people that, I mean, I have season tickets for, right? I bought stock in it. I'm never selling that stock, right? right? But I will also say, maybe that wasn't like so, so good. But I, I just think that like we have a hard time listening when our Brock is telling you that he's better than you. <laughs> They know that already. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that is, I think that's a problem with an artist like, like Woody Allen. I think it's a problem with an artist like Bob Dylan, right? I mean, look, you can't tell me that that (laughs) all of his albums are fucking great because they're not. There's a lot of shit. There's a lot of shit there. Okay, anyway. (laughs) um, Yeah. I think you get it. So, look, I think, unfortunately... Yeah, I, I hate to I hate to end May on us basically shitting on five movies, six, six movies at this point. I mean, like technically well, six. Yeah, but but we are not. And, and, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want the I don't we're want not the, denigrating Elaine May. No, 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 no. I do. I don't think that the things that she was asked to act in and that she chose to act in lived up to her talent level. Right. I do think that for the most part, everything that she was in that we talked about today, she was the best thing about that thing. Um, and especially small times crooks. I mean, and there were moments where she really, really, truly got to shine. Um, and and there's things that, I, like I said, I just I you know, for whatever reason and whatever reason it didn't happen, or 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 she decided that it shouldn't happen. 
uh, you know, I, I from her directing to her screenwriting to her acting, I just I wish there were more. I mean, we we both wish there were more. We I, th- I think we can say that we have become sort of enamored with Elaine May, and I think we can also say with confidence that Elaine May does not care. <laughs> right. No, right. And, and I mean, like, like the, I mean, these are choices that I think she clearly made, and for her reasons, and, and her reasons alone, as much as we may want her to fill us in, maybe she'll listen to this one. Too. Maybe. I'll, I'll send it to her publicist and see if we can find out she'll, she'll give us a shot. <laughs> um, but no, she does. She, she, look, and I, look, and all, out of all of this, who, who the fuck are we? Oh, you know no, I mean? right, like, right. I mean, that's. I think that's the message of this podcast is who the fuck are we? We clearly understand that. She doesn't, she, all that she owes us. That is a tagline. <laughs> right. That is a little scream. Who the, fuck, who the are fuck are we? All she owes us is her best life, right? Live her best <laughs> life and, and that's, and we'll be happy with that. And that goes for filmmakers we don't even fucking like. I mean, that's not, right. the intent here is not to, it's just to examine. So, I, yeah, no, I'm, I, I am glad we have what we have. And I think the, the, the pieces that shine through are phenomenal and I'm glad to be a fan and I'm glad to know her work and I'm glad that we've been able to do this over four episodes and know her work better right um and yeah, so for me to lament or for us to lament that there's not more of it, I think that's natural, but I don't want to give anybody the impression, especially as we talked about it today, that that um, that there's any sort of negative neg- 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 negativity no. about any of this. So. Oh, no, no, not at all. Just just the Woody Allen stuff. <laughs> I, I, I do. Th- and this will kind of be my last maybe last note on this. But I do, <laughs> there's a part of me that likes that we didn't get more because what we have <laughs> is a kind of enigma. And that sort of makes it even better. The yeah, fact that we no. can't puzzle all this stuff out it's like this makes it even richer you know and I think I, I, I don't know if she started out and and knew that would be calculated or not I don't know you know again we'll never know right but she started out from day one essentially being an unreliable narrator in her own story mm-hmm. and I think part of that is pretty prescient and like and 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 you know and smart on her part to realize that the not knowing is way more interesting than knowing all the details and to question and to, and to, and to wonder is part of the beauty of the fandom and part of beauty of the and adds to a mystique to her where, you know, if we knew all the answers and she was coming out and, 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 and living uh, a fully public life that was just, that was a, you know, here's the Elaine May biography and here's the definitive word. I don't think it wouldn't be, well, I, I don't know. It, it, we wouldn't still be having this conversation, right? Because we right. would have already we would have already just been able to read about it and go, okay, well, that was the reason why. Right. And the system was against her, or at least fought against her, and I think she knew that and decided to I don't know maybe take this approach and in a way kind of win as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and still kind of oh yeah have her own agency and, and have things that are just for her. Yeah. So we are Elaine May stands and she's never done anything wrong ever in her entire life. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we we hope you enjoyed kind of the dig and the dive into into Elaine May's career, kind of all aspects of her career. Uh, I know I certainly did, and I don't know, I'm better for it. Next time, listeners, we will be digging into new films, Triangle of Sadness, Infinity Pool, and Women Talking. Those are three strange films to talk about together, but we'll make it work because we're also going to talk about 
9 to 5 that the Fort Worth Film Club will be screening in conjunction with She Dares Collective. So we're uh, in Women's History Month. We're, yeah, we've uh, working with, we're very, very happy to be working with She Dares and they were the ones who, who suggested 9 to 5, which I, I love as a movie um, and I think it's a great, uh, make, a, make a great conversation piece for sure. So I was going to say, so actually this this will work well. We've got two like rich behaving badly films and we have two films about women and women empowerment. Uh, Excellent. Good. Yeah, good conversation pieces. Um, If there's nothing else, uh, thanks for listening. Keep screaming. And so I I don't know what else to say except um, enjoy your food. I'm not sure what it is. Who, who, what is it? (laughs) Oh, really? I didn't know. Anyway, have a good time. I'm going to find my way off the stage and thank (laughs) thank thank you for this amazingly heavy award. You have been listening to Why Does the Wilhelm Scream with your hosts, Brock and Jason. If you liked today's episode, do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe in whatever application you use to consume podcasts these days. You can reach us by visiting whydoesthewilhelmscream.com. If you are in the DFW area, we would love to see you at a Fort Worth Film Club event. You can learn more about those and find a full schedule at fortworthfilmclub.com. And you can learn about my foundation and how we are trying to foster the next generation of film lovers at realhousefoundation.org. That's R-E-E-L housefoundation.org. Till next time. Bye.